Well, it's wonderful to be here with all of you here today. Thank you so much for coming to uh, spend this Lord's Day with us, especially uh, you husbands, your wives got you here today to hear this uh, message that I was telling about last week. So we're glad you're here. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, this is a first Sunday of the month. Uh, this uh, is a Sunday we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So we'll do that at the end of the service. I just always like to remind us of that so uh, that we can be preparing our hearts for that time of uh, fellowship around the table with one another and, and with our Lord. Uh, we're continuing this morning in our series in the book of 1 Peter. Um, it's a series we've titled Still Standing. So if you take your Bible and turn with me uh, to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, we're just going to look at this one verse this morning. Um, it's a, a message I've titled, uh, Help for Husbands. Uh, but this isn't just a message for husbands today. Really, it's for married couples. If you're a wife here this morning, you need to know uh, what God has called your husband to be. If you're a single man today who aspires to be married, uh, this is uh, your job description for uh, you when you're a married man. And if you're a single woman here today who aspires to be married, this is the kind of man you need to be looking for. So it's really a message uh, for all of us today, but we, we certainly want to focus on husbands this morning and what God has called us to be. I read a story a while back about Adam. He was hanging around the Garden of Eden, feeling very lonely, and so God asked him, what's wrong with you? And he said, well, he didn't have anybody to talk to, and so God said he was going to make Adam a companion, and she would be a woman. And then God said this to Adam, this pretty lady will gather food for you. She'll cook for you. When you discover clothing, she'll wash it for you. She will always agree with every decision you make and will not nag you and will always be the first to admit she was wrong when you have a disagreement. She'll praise you. She'll bear your children and never ask you to get up in the middle of the night to take care of them. She'll never have a headache and will freely give you love and passion whenever you need it. Adam asked God, well, what will a woman like this cost? And God said, well, an arm and a leg. And Adam said, well, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> Men especially like that story, I think. But, but truth be told, Adam got the deal of a lifetime uh, when he got Eve that day. And God has given every man here who's married a, a rare and a valuable treasure when he gave us the gift of our wife. But you and I as men today need to understand and to learn how to properly value and to cherish uh, the wife that God has given to us. Uh, the love and the leadership of a husband in marriage is vital to the marriage. I mean, it really can't be overemphasized. I was in some of the reading I've been doing the last couple of weeks about husbands and wives and marriage, I ran across a quote by a man named John Gottman. Now, he's not a, a biblical scholar. He's a, a secular man, but he's one of the nation's leading marriage researchers and educators. Now, listen to what he says. This is powerful. What men do in a relationship is by a large margin the crucial factor that separates a great relationship from a failed one. This doesn't mean that a woman doesn't need to do her part, but the data proves that a man's actions are the key variable that determines whether a relationship succeeds or fails. Now that's sobering. I mean, it says, by a large margin... The crucial factor that separates a great relationship from a failed one is uh, the man in that relationship. And the Bible really supports that. You go back to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 as God creates the man and God creates the woman. The man's created first and then the woman, but the woman sins first and then the man. But who does God come to first? Adam, where are you? 
He ultimately holds Adam responsible for what's taken place. And I believe that, that men are ultimately responsible before God in their marriage. It doesn't mean a wife can't undermine the marriage, can't cause problems, obviously can't sabotage the marriage. But I believe God ultimately holds the man responsible for what takes place. So that means as men that we have to lead. We have to reject passivity. You have to take the initiative You have to to move out and move in to your wife's heart and into her life. And my prayer is that God will use 1 Peter 3, verse 7 this morning to equip us to fulfill the incredible opportunity that God has given to us as husbands. Let me read this verse for us this morning. You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So reads God's inspired word. Some of you know uh, the name James Merritt. He's a very well-known Baptist preacher. Um, Several months ago, I was reading his book on the Psalms. It's uh, called uh, uh, 52 uh, Weeks in the Psalms. It's a really good book. But in there, he tells this story. He says, my wife was a big fan of Patrick Swayze. And I assume those of you who are younger here will know who that is. But anyway, he says, Patrick Swayze was an actor in movies like The Outsiders, Roadhouse, Dirty Dancing. But the role of his life was in a movie called Ghost, the highest grossing film of 1990. He says, I could always tell when Patrick Swayze was on TV because Teresa, my wife, got this glazed over look in her eyes. One day I happened to walk into the living room, Tom took one look at her, and knew immediately who was on television. I said, why are you so enamored with him? If you took away his money, his good looks, and his body, what would you have? She looked at me and said, I'd have you. (laughs) Hopefully that's not true in any of our marriages here today, but uh, look, most of us husbands know that we're not all that we should be in a lot of ways, right? We all fall short. But I pray that God, by His Spirit this morning, will move in our lives to cause us to strive to be all that we can be, first for the Lord, because He's the one ultimately that's worthy, but also for our wives. Now, last week we looked at wives, and we called it a word to the wives in in verses 1 to 6. And we saw what we called there the duty and the beauty of a wife, the duty of a wife to submit to her husband and respect him, and the beauty of a wife, that, that inner beauty of the heart. Uh, that God desires. But again, this morning, we're going to look at husbands. And now what we have here is just one verse, and it's very brief, just 25 words in the original Greek. But there's an amazing economy of words here. It's incredibly comprehensive. Really, this one verse captures the essence of what a godly husband needs to do and needs to be. So you can see in your outline three simple points, the resemblance, the responsibilities, and the reward. So let's start with the resemblance, and we'll just spend uh, really just a couple of minutes on this first point. It's, it's simple. But notice it begins in the text, you husbands in the same way. You say, well, in the same way as what? Well, in the same way as your wife, but notice back in chapter 3, verse 1, when he begins to talk to the wives, he says to the wives, in the same way, you wives. So again, we asked last time in the same way as what? Well, in the same way as the sacrifice and the submission of Jesus. In chapter uh, 2, verses 21 to 25, we have Jesus set forth as the sacrificial servant, the one who gave his life for us. 
And so in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, in the same way, you wives. In other words, as the same way that Christ was sacrificial and giving. You're to, you're to have that same relationship with your husband. So I think now when we come to verse 7, and he says, you husbands, in the same way, he's saying, husbands, your model also is Jesus. The husband, like the wife, is to be a sacrificial servant like Christ. So Jesus is the model for both spouses in marriage of giving and of sacrificing ourselves uh, for one another. Uh, you might know the name Dennis Thatcher. He was the uh, husband of the former prime minister of, of Great Britain, uh, Margaret Thatcher. She was known as the Iron Lady. When they were moving into uh, 10 Downing Street, which is the address of the prime minister, some reporter came up and stuck a microphone in his face and said, who wears the pants in your family? And he said, I do. But then he said, I also washed them and ironed them. <laughs> and I like that. Because a lot of men have this idea, you know, I'm, I'm the leader of the family, and I wear the pants in the family, but they don't ever want to wash them and iron them. There's not a, a servant attitude to minister to their wife and to their family. So Jesus is our ultimate example of servant leadership to, in our, to our wife and to our family. Husbands in the same way, like Jesus. Now, the second thing we see here, and we'll spend more time on this, are the responsibilities that husbands have for their wives. And three main responsibilities, I believe, are outlined here. Uh, they, they all start with the letter T, you can see in your outline. The first one is time. It's time. Notice it says, live with your wives. Live with your wives. It's in the present tense in Greek. It means to continue to do this. And it means a lot more than just sharing the same address or living under the same roof uh, with your wife. It means to dwell with your wife, spend time with your wife, uh, share meaningful communication with your wife. You could translate this, make a home for your wife, or literally be at home with your wife. The husband is the one who's primarily responsible for the close relationship of the marriage. When you have a man who's passive and who is aloof, you're going to have a marriage that's distant. Rodney Dangerfield said this once, certainly not a great expert on marriage, but he said this, my wife and I sleep in separate beds, we eat our meals apart, we take separate vacations, we're doing everything we can to keep our marriage together. That's sad. That's the way some people kind of are. You know, it's kind of like, hey, we'll just live different lives and somehow we'll do that and we'll, we'll try to keep this thing together. But it's the job of the man in the marriage to keep the relationship close, to spend time with your wife, and to make a home uh, for your wife. So the first thing is simply just time. Spend time with your wife. Dwell with your wife and live with her and make a home for your wife. The second thing here we could summarize under the word thought, to be thoughtful, to think about your wife. Notice it says, live with your wives, and then it says, in an understanding way, to give thought to your wife. Now, literally, you could translate this in Greek, live with your wife according to knowledge. Live with her according to knowledge. Now, there's three different ways, primarily, that commentators and scholars take this phrase uh, in an understanding way, or actually the whole phrase, you know, dwell with your wife in an understanding way. Some take this to mean to dwell with your wife sexually according to knowledge, because the word to live with your wife or dwell with your wife 
in some contexts has the idea of to cohabit with, carries the, the connotation of a, the sexual relationship. So some scholars and commentators take this to mean that a husband is to live with his wife according to knowledge of how to fulfill her sexual needs or being sensitive to his wife concerning uh, their sexual relationship. And certainly that's true. That's a part of what we should do as loving husbands. Others take this to mean, and they'll say when it, when it says in an understanding way or according to knowledge, it means knowledge of your responsibilities as a husband. In other words, know the biblical responsibilities you have as a husband. And certainly that's important as well, and that's part of what we're doing here this morning, laying out these responsibilities. But I think there's a third idea here that I think is the main thought, and that is live with your wife according to knowledge, and it means knowledge of her to know your wife. It's not just to know your responsibilities, but to know your wife. Again, all three of these I think are true and good, but I think that's the focus, to know your wife, to live with her according to knowledge of who she is and what she's like. Now, the word knowledge here, live with your wife according to knowledge, is a Greek word that means experiential knowledge. It's another word that that carries more the idea of intellectual knowledge or intuitive knowledge. But it's a word here that means experiential knowledge of spending time with your wife and knowing her. And what this means is that that husbands uh, need to be students of their wives, to study them. In the Phillips translation, he says, try to understand the wives you live with. In other words, try to understand every room in your wife's heart. Have a growing, deepening knowledge of her. And of course, that means you have to spend time with her, right? You have to spend time. It means you have to listen. It means you have to be engaged. It means you have to probe and be sensitive to her needs and desires, her goals, her frustrations, and her strengths and her weaknesses. You have to be curious and ask questions. I would say in many relationships between husbands and wives, the wives ask a lot of questions, and the men often give very brief and very short answers. But as husbands, we need to be curious and ask questions and listen to the answers to discover the the moods and the feelings and the preferences and the needs and the fears and the hopes of our wives. In other words, learn how your wife is put together. Every person's different. Now, come to know her inner makeup. And of course, to do that, it means you have to spend quality time together to know this. We have to have what we might call unhurried times of fellowship. And that's hard to find often. And I know for those of you maybe who are younger in your family and you've got children and all kinds of things going on, it's, time, it's hard to, to find those times of unhurried fellowship. And you can turn off the television and the distractions and put away the phones and simply spend time to get to know a one another's heart. I don't have to tell the men this here today. We're different from our wives, right? Very different. And that's a good thing. But it takes time for us to know them. One man said it like this. He said, in the early years of your marriage, you fight because you don't understand each other. In the later years, you fight because you do. That's probably true in far too many marriages, but it shouldn't be that way. I like the way uh, Chuck Swindoll uh, puts it. He says, to know your wife means to know the answers to those complex questions about her. What is her innermost makeup? 
What are her deepest concerns and fears? How do you help her work through them in the safety and security of your love? What does she need from you? Why does she respond the way she does? There's no handbook for those insights into her life. And I like this. He says, even your father-in-law can't give you this inside information. You have to find it out in the intimacy of marriage and in the process of cultivating your life together. It takes time. It takes listening. It takes paying attention, concentrating, praying for insight, seeking understanding. And then he says this. This is, this is sobering and sad. Most wives long for that. Some of them die longing for it. That's sad. Some wives die longing for that kind of a relationship with their husband. You know, when you think about it, uh, as a man, you can put your wife's name there. I'll put my wife's name, Cheryl. I need to be a Cherylologist. That's what you need to be. Whatever your wife's name is, you need to be a student of your wife, a studier and a learner of her. You can put your wife's name in there this morning and say, I need to be a, a Cherylologist and place your wife's name there. We need to be a student of them. Know what they're about and what their fears and their aspirations and their desires are in life. It takes time. The third responsibility here for a husband is treasure, to treasure his wife. Notice the end of verse 7 or near the end. It says, show her honor. Show her honor or grant her honor. Again, it's the present tense. It's to continue to do this, assign to your wife a place of honor. It's uh, an attitude really of chivalry. I know that's not a word we use much anymore, but an attitude of chivalry that's to accompany your growing knowledge and understanding of your wife. You honor your wife with your time, with your attention, uh, with money. You're engaged in ways that show that you value her. And don't do things that disgrace or dishonor or degrade her in any way. Most of you have heard the name Gary Smalley. is an expert on family and marriage. I was uh, struck by this quote I read by him. He says this, After interviewing hundreds of wives and daughters, there's one consistent plea that's commonly asked by all of them of their fathers and their husbands. And it's this, please be comforting instead of lecturing and criticizing. <laughs> now, I think about men in general, we like to criticize and lecture. And it's saying the one thing that was consistent in all these daughters and wives that were interviewed is they asked, please be comforting instead of criticizing and lecturing. And I thought about that. I mean, that's a way to honor our wives and to value them, to comfort them. Instead of always lecturing and criticizing. Then Peter adds this, he says, as with someone weaker since she is a woman. Now, the reference here to a wife being weaker is not a reference to intellectual weakness or moral weakness or emotional weakness or spiritual weakness. In fact, many wives are stronger than their husbands intellectually, emotionally, or spiritually. It's talking here, I believe, about physical weakness because generally women are physically weaker than men. Now, I've seen a few women in marriages that I think could probably take their husbands, but usually the man is stronger than the woman. That's a general statement, right? That's why women are sometimes called uh, the weaker sex. Now, notice here in the passage, though it doesn't say that women are weak, it says weaker. We're all weak, right? We're all frail. Men are weak too. We're all frail vessels. 
But it's just simply saying that generally the wife is weaker than the husband. And what this is saying then is treat her with special understanding and care, with someone who's to be treasured. In other words, with special tender care. Whenever I uh, moved out of the house with my parents and was single for a while after I'd finished law school, I was living by myself, and I went and had to get some dishes, and so about the cheapest kind you can get. I can't remember what they were called. It wasn't Corningware. It was some other word. It starts with a C, I think. But anyway, it was like four to six plates. I mean, cheap stuff. And I only used one plate and one bowl, because every time I'd get done, I'd just wash them off. So I never even learned how to use the dishwasher. It kind of probably shows you uh, some things inside into my personality. But anyway... <laughs> But when we got married, when Cheryl and I got engaged and got married, you go register and all this. And I don't think a lot of couples do this as much anymore, but you always registered kind of your everyday wear and then this fine china. I mean, I'd never seen plates like this before. These were beautiful. I mean, they cost, you know, $100 a plate. And I remember when we got married, I was used to just kind of having these old dishes I had, you know, throwing them around. And if you'd had somebody over and had this china out, you handled it in a much different way. It's very expensive. You chipped the old plate, you just tossed it in the trash and didn't care about it. But I think that's a picture here of what, what we're saying here. Treat your wife not like just some everyday wear that if it's broken, you don't care about it. Treat your wife like fine china. I think the negative side of this is, is shown over in Colossians 3. We won't turn there, but you, you can read this later, men. In, in Paul's writings in Colossians to husbands, he has one verse. So this short, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. That's all he says. Husbands, love your wives, don't be embittered against them. Really, if you do those two things as a man, you fulfilled your responsibility. Love your wife, and that word, don't be embittered against them, is a word that we could translate harsh or brusque or angry. And if I were to look at a lot of men I know and say one of the traits that we have often with our wives is we're harsh and we're kind of short and terse and we're, we're short with our wives. And treating your wife harshly or being brusque or short with her tends to develop after a couple has been married a while sometimes. And we need to be aware of this as men because you can trace the deterioration of love in a lot of marriages as the years go by and the man becomes more short and more harsh with his wife over time and fails to value her and treasure her. Now there's a really, really old illustration out there, but I'm going to use it this morning because I like it. It's called the seven ages of the married cold. And it's the reaction of a husband to his wife's cold during seven years of marriage, the first seven years. So here's the first year. Sugar dumpling, I'm worried about my baby girl. You've got a bad sniffle, and there's no telling about these things with all this strep going around. I'm putting you in the hospital this afternoon for a general checkup and a good rest. I know the food's lousy, but I'll bring your meals in from a restaurant. I've already got it arranged with the floor superintendent. The second year, listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough, and I've called the doctor uh, to get you into an appointment as quickly as possible. Now, you go to, go to bed, please, and do it just for me. The third year, maybe you'd better lie down, honey. Nothing like a little rest when you feel bad. I'll bring you something to eat. Do we have any soup? The fourth year, look, dear, be sensible. After you feed the kids and get the dishes washed, you'd better hit the sock. The fifth year, why don't you get yourself a couple of aspirin? Uh, the sixth year, if you just gargle or something instead of sitting around barking like a seal. And then the seventh year, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. What are you going to do trying to give me pneumonia? 
and it probably just gets worse and worse from there, right? But, but that's the negative side of what this means, to, to value and to assign honor to your wife. It's just to be, to be harsh and to be short uh, with your wife. But the positive side is to assign value and respect and honor, to esteem her as having great value, to accept her as fully worthy of respect and loving esteem, to respect her feelings and her thinking and her desires, to value and honor her and do everything that you can to make her feel loved and be important to you and highly valued. You do it with words, you do it with actions. Again, you do it with time and listening and care and respect and money in all kinds of ways. Proverbs 31:28, the Proverbs 31 woman, we also have her husband, and it says, her husband praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Let me ask you, do you do that? Do you praise your wife? Do you brag on her? Do you, do you tell her how much she means to you? Do you say things that will build her up and show honor and esteem and respect for her? It's really the same idea we have in Ephesians 5 where it says husbands are to, to cherish and to nourish their wives. It means to warm her and literally warm her and feed her, to give her a place of security, a place where she can uh, thrive and flourish, and become the woman that God wants her to be. It's, it's the husband's job to make his wife feel important and loved and cherished and never let his love for her decay or erode where he comes to just take her for granted. Tony Evans, the, the pastor in Dallas, says this, a husband's job is to set the temperature in the home. The woman is the thermometer. She is to give a temperature reading. The reading of the thermometer ought to reflect the setting of a thermostat. If a man wants a summer wife, he can't bring home winter weather. It's good advice. So again, how do we do this practically? Well, it's assigning top priority to your wife and your schedule. In all your human relationships that she has top priority. She has top priority in your finances, and most importantly, that she has top priority in your heart, and that she knows that and believes that. And men, you and I need to understand here this morning that big resentments often grow out of small hurts over time. Small hurts and wounds where you fail to esteem and honor your wife can easily build up over time and wreak all kinds of havoc. So some of us may need to be very honest here this morning and admit hurts against our wives, maybe long-standing, festering ones, and seek forgiveness and healing with your wife. And then I love this. Peter adds, do all of this and treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's a co-share. She's a companion in the grace of life. So treat her as your spiritual equal. Your wife has equal standing before God, and you need to treat her that way. One man I read said this. He says, women will never be equal to men until they can walk down the street with a bald head and a big gut and think they're beautiful. <laughs> But they are equal to us, aren't they, in God's eyes? Your wife was purchased with the same precious blood of Christ. She was drawn to Jesus by the same Holy Spirit. She's a recipient of the same amazing grace. And she came to Jesus the same way that you came, through faith and through trust in Him. 
There's a really old quote. I'm sure all of you have heard it. It's been oft repeated, but I think it bears repeating here this morning again. It's from the great old commentator, Matthew Henry, when he said, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither taken out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. Your wife is your companion in the grace of life. One commentator I read this week, I love this, he said, the Christian husband and wife are bound together in the bundle of life. To me, that's a great way to think about our marriage. My wife and I were bound together in the bundle of life. We're fellow heirs of the grace of God, of the grace of life. Now, let me just pause for a moment and ask a very important question. Are you an heir of the grace of life? It says here, speaking to Christian couples, you're heirs together of the grace of life, but there may be someone here this morning and you're not an heir of God's grace because you've never put your hope and your trust completely in Jesus Christ to be your Savior. You know, to be an heir, to receive an inheritance, you don't have to do anything, right? You don't have to do anything to get an inheritance. You don't have to work for it. And it's the same way with our salvation. Jesus has purchased an inheritance for us. And all you and I have to do to receive that inheritance, to become an heir of Jesus Christ, is simply to receive it. Down in 1 Peter 3.18, a few verses down here, it says that Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Jesus is your substitute. He's a sacrifice for your sins. If you've never trusted in him, receive that inheritance he has for you. That's what you need uh, to do this morning. Well, the final thought in this verse here is what I call the reward. Notice those words, so that your prayers will not be hindered. The word so that denotes result here or or reward. And he gives an added incentive here. God gives a promise here or a reward to the loving, caring husband. And that reward is an effective prayer life. One of the things that I desire in my life more than anything else is to have an effective prayer life. Because there's a lot of people with a lot of needs, and I have a lot of needs, and my family has needs. We all do. We want an effective prayer life before God. And when he says here, so that your prayers will not be hindered, I take that to be the husband's prayers. So that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, by the way, this assumes that we're men of prayer, right? It assumes we are praying. So I I hope that all of us here are men of prayer. We have a time every day we get alone with God and pray, and then we do what Paul says in Thessalonians. Then throughout the day, we just pray without ceasing. But it assumes we're men of prayer. But it says here, if you don't live with your wife and spend time with her, and if you don't live with her in an understanding way according to knowledge, and grant her honor as an heir of the grace of life, he says your prayers will be hindered. And this word hindered is a strong word. It's a, a military metaphor of an army going out and cutting up a road to prevent a, a, an opposing army for, from being able to make their way along that road. So what it's saying here is failure to spend time with your wife and to understand her and to honor her cuts up the road between heaven and between earth and heaven. Your prayers aren't getting there. The road's all chopped up and cut up. Now, that's a sobering thing uh, to think about. It's serious. Your relationship with your wife, if it's not what God wants us to be, it'll block your prayers. 
It's a story I heard about a young reporter was trying to, to, to get a human interest story. She heard about a, a man who uh, had gone for 50 years to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, the Western Wall, and he prayed there every day two times. And so she found him there, and she asked him, she said, how long have you been coming here? He said, twice a day for 50 years, every day. She said, well, what do you pray for? He says, I pray for peace between the Jews and the Arabs. And she said, how do you feel about that after 50 years? And he said, like I'm talking to a wall. But I think for a lot of men, it's the same thing. A lot of men, their, their prayers are just like praying to a wall. And that is what it's like for men who do not value their wives. And I think all of us here, all of us men probably have experienced this before. <clears throat> Whenever things are not right with myself and Cheryl, I'm, there's something wrong with my prayer life. First of all, you don't feel like even praying. And when you do pray, you don't feel like it's getting anywhere. There, there's no liberty in your prayer life. You have to go and make that ride. And when you make that ride, it's incredible then how your prayer life is freed up and your fellowship with God. Wayne Grudem says this. He says, so concerned is God that Christian husbands live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he interrupts his fellowship with them when they're not doing so. And that's how serious this is to God. God will interrupt his fellowship with a man because of how he treats his wife. Now, I thought about this a lot, and, and the next time a man comes up to you, you've got a problem, and maybe you share it with some different men, and one of the men says, hey, uh, man, I'll be praying for you. You might want to stop and ask that guy, how you been treating your wife lately? <laughs> now, I'm not going to do that. I'm just saying, but I'm, you might think it, right? <laughs> because if he hadn't been treating his wife the way he should, you know what's going to happen? His prayers aren't going anywhere. His prayers aren't going to be effective. So, I want people praying for me. I want men praying for me who love their wife and who value her, who spend time with her and who seek to understand her. Because those are men when they pray that their prayers are going to reach the ear of God. Look, tensions in the home erect a barrier between a husband and God. It wreaks havoc with the prayer life of a man. And for many men here this morning, your prayer life may be clogged up at home. And you keep wondering why there's no breakthrough in your prayer life and things you've been seeking God for. And it may be because of how you're treating your wife. Look, this is a serious and sober warning to us. It's the cutting off of divine blessing in our lives. And over time, if it stays that way, God is going to become distant and he's going to become unreal to you. So how you treat your wife is serious business. And you remember Peter was a married apostle, so I'm sure Peter experienced this himself in his own life a time or two. He probably knew what he was talking about. So this is a powerful motivation for treating your wife with understanding and honor. This is the reward. And uh, one commentary I have in my library on 1 Peter by Juan Sanchez, he says this, and we'll close with this this morning. He says, God designed male-female relationships to be a beautiful dance where the man leads and the woman follows. When two people know how to dance, they're of one mind. The man anticipates where he will lead the woman, and the woman anticipates where she will be led. And I want to leave you with that image this morning of your marriage. God wants your marriage and he wants my marriage to be like a beautiful dance where both of us are living and learning the steps that God has given to us and carrying them out 
so that our marriage can be a dance to the glory of God. And the steps for a wife, they're simple again. It's to submit and to respect and focus on the inner beauty of the heart. And for the husband, it's intelligent, understanding, giving, honoring leadership in the home. And so let's dance together in our marriages, certainly to, to, to bring satisfaction to ourselves, uh, to, to uh, bring a, be a good witness to our children and to the community, but ult- ultimately, we want to dance well together for the glory of God. So I have an assignment for you this week. Sit down sometime this week. Maybe today would be good while it's fresh on your mind, and take some time and talk about your marriage. Maybe there'll need to be some confession. Uh, maybe some commitment or recommitment uh, to one another. And I would say, husbands, take the lead in this again. You're the leader in the home. On the way driving here this morning, Cheryl knew what we were going to talk about, and I said that when we get home today, um, I want you to listen to the things I say, and then I want you to give me a grade on how well I do. Well, Cheryl's really nice, and she'll give me a higher grade than I know I deserve. She's an easy grader. But, um, but that's a good thing maybe to do. But maybe if the grade's not what you thought it was going to be, don't get angry about it. Talk about it and say, why is that? What are the things that God needs to do in my life that I need to seek Him about so I can be the, the, the man that God wants me to be and so I can have a, a powerful prayer life uh, to, to the Lord? Well, let's pray together. Father, we pray if there's anyone here who's not an heir of the grace of life, that they'd come to Jesus now and receive him and take him to be their savior. And Father, I pray for myself, for all of us here, that you'll make our marriages a beautiful dance. That as husbands and wives, that we'll, we'll learn and we'll live out the steps that you've given us, that each one of us are to take to make our marriage something that's mutually satisfying to us, something that's a witness to the watching world around us, And Father, a marriage that can ultimately be an act of worship will bring glory to your great name. Now, Father, minister to us as we draw near to you at the Lord's table. May Christ be honored by our time together. Now, in his name we pray. Amen.